You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Very grateful for the jury for their, you know, they've worked so diligently, they've listened so well and that they found more failings than, than we, we thought that we would get and they've, it's, I can't even begin to express my grief and my gratitude at the same time, it's, I'm just overwhelmed. As far as we're concerned, Maria's murder is much the fault of Essex police as the murderer himself. The level of incompetence, the lack of basic policing, the failure to communicate key information, words simply fail us. Change at a local level is promised. We'll wait to see if it translates into change on the ground. But even if it does, change at a local level is not enough. Hey lovely listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week I'm really privileged to be joined by Manuel Fernandez, Maria's brother, Bengi Stubbings, Maria's son, and Celia, Maria's daughter. We had a very honest, candid and courageous interview about Maria's murder and the aftermath, and you'll hear this interview in two parts, and let me just start by saying that it's not an easy listen. And so a heads up before the episode begins. Bengi had a trauma-related reaction in the interview. It was unexpected and it was upsetting. And we, well, actually, I'm not going to say anything more about it because you'll hear what happened in the actual episode. But what I will say is that trauma resides on a cellular level in our bodies. The body keeps the score. Remember Bessel van der Kolk's book that I've referenced before? You see, we don't always know when we might be triggered or activated, even when we feel we're prepared to meet a challenge. But what I will say is that this is a real-life consequence, and it came up 14 years on. You see, these are real and authentic conversations, and Bengi and I agreed that we'd keep it in, because if it helps one person, then it's worth it. Listener discretion is advised. You may find this episode triggering, and I'm sure you'll find it angry-making. Okay, so if you're ready, let's jump into the interview. Hi, Celia, Manuel and Bengi. It's really good to have you here on Crime Analyst. And I'm not going to say I'm excited about this interview because excited is the wrong word. I feel very heavy hearted, but I am excited about just some of the things for the learning that I know that the three of you are really keen that people understand the learning from what happened to Maria. So, Perhaps let's start with just hearing from each of you, Manuel and Bengi, if you want to say something about Maria before we talk about really what happened and what some of the key learning points are. Manuel, do you want to start off? Uh, hi, Laura. Lovely to be on, on your program. Maria was obviously my sister. Uh, I'm the youngest of four children. And in many respects growing up, my sister was more or less my surrogate mother because we were, you know, single parent family. My father had left when I was quite young. My sister and I grew an exceptionally strong bond because we were always together. She was always my babysitter and carer. 
when I joined the army and returned from the army, I actually even lived with her for a while um, before I found my feet back in civilian street. Yeah, so we, we were exceptionally close. It was almost a, a very special and rare relationship, really. But actually, I, I have very fond memories of Maria being extremely kind-hearted, beautiful-looking person. You know, men used to try and beat me to get to her. I used to try and be a bodyguard. But she never judged anybody on their looks or what they had or anything. She was very genuine, very caring. Sometimes I would come home from work and there would be a little box with a bird in it that she'd rescued. She was just a very caring, beautiful soul, very funny, very witty, very intelligent. But fundamentally, I think, just underpin how kind she was. You know, She had a tough childhood and she did everything she could to learn from that tough childhood, to bring up Celia and Bengi the best she could. And she did a fantastic job. Obviously, she had challenges, but that's how I remember Maria, you know, as an exceptional human being. I mean, she's my sister, I would say that. But actually, she was what I've said. She was a really kind-hearted person. Oh, I love to hear that. Very similar to what Celia was saying, just a very kind, thoughtful and caring person. Um, Bengi, what do you remember of your mum? Uh, if you can't do it, then uh, Think of the good things, but if you can. You got this, Bengi. <laughs> okay. You don't have to say, Bengi. It's okay. I don't say nothing. All it's right. okay. Bengi's cool. cool. Come on, drink some water. Come on. Take some deep breaths. No, this Keep is not breathing. the one. It's so hard. It's your mum, and it's so difficult to, to express. Deep breaths, Bengi. 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 Take your take your breathing deeper. Breathe into your stomach. Measure your breathing. Breathe deep. Control it. You got this. Just breathe deep. Be present. Mino's here. I'm here. It's not happening now. Okay, we're all good. You're safe. Okay, so I'm hopping in here. What you just heard was Bengi having a panic attack. He froze first of all, and then his breathing began to speed up. And it got faster and faster. And I could see that he'd gone back there. And Celia and Manuel interjected. And then I also interjected and grounded Bengi back in the present. We let him know that he was safe. We brought him back to the reality that he was in. And he managed to slow his breathing down. And he was then deep breathing and grounding himself. And he took a little bit of time out. And we then agreed to continue the conversation. Bengi's incredibly brave and he's authentic and he wanted to share what happened. Okay, so let's rejoin the conversation. So, yeah, I would just like to jump in on Bengi's behalf and just say I'm just really grateful that he's even present today with us because, as you could see from the response in his body or the reaction of you asking about mum, that trauma is stored in the body. And so, you know, Laura, I'm a big advocate for people doing the, the work because if you don't do the work, the trauma that's stored in the body, it keeps you in a low energy. You feel stuck. 
blocked, creates dis-ease, you can't move forward with your life. And that's kind of why I'm even more proud of Ben Gia. I couldn't be prouder to have him as a brother because of who he is and the content of his character and his heart. But also because he's digging deep to face his fears, deal with his insecurities, take responsibility for how he processes something that was just out of this world, catastrophically awful. It's a lifetime's recovery. And when the signs are so clear, like we talked in the last podcast, the training for police officers to have that right domestic abuse training, for them to also have, in my in my view, some sort of therapeutic resource so that the compassion fatigue and all of that accumulated stress and normalization of trauma is cleared from their body so that they don't just get tick boxy and numb out more and more and more. Because it's scary to feel the pain and the loss of someone you love so close. It's, it is absolutely, I won't say souls destroying because it's not if you do the work. I was going to say one thing, actually, that I think is kind of interesting. When we look at trauma, you know, unfortunately, we're born dying. So we know that we're going to die at some stage. It doesn't make it easier when someone that we love dies. Grief is a terrible thing. A friend of mine that I've known for 20 years, his wife died. I've known her for 20 years on Friday. And I've been grief-stricken, but it's a different grief as well. I think when it's close to you, it's you know, like family, it's harder. But I think when it was preventable, it's a double trauma because it's not someone died of a cancer that you knew they had the cancer and that they were going to die anyway. We're talking about someone that could have been saved, not once, not twice, so many times, when something should have been prevented, could have been prevented, the grief is double. It's not like someone died in a car accident. That's awful. But that car accident never needed to happen, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Sorry. Mino and I were talking the other day, Laura, and he said, you know, we put a price on everything. And one thing you can't put a price on is human life. It's too precious. And why aren't we seeing that? Why aren't we protecting it? Why isn't taxpayers' money being distributed into training to protect the life it's supposed to? Absolutely. Mm. That's something I talk to police a lot about. And there's no greater honour, that's what I say to them, than keeping people safe. You know, that's a huge honour. And taking a back step, what I wanted to say right from the start is how courageous you all have been, because it's not easy speaking out. And it's not easy talking now, even years later, about the person that you loved. And like you said, about a situation that actually was preventable. Now, I believe absolutely Maria's murder was preventable. I've spent my career analysing cases and helping to learn the lessons, helping other people learn the lessons. And I think what you did as a family was truly courageous. I remember the challenge that you put into the Independent Police Complaints Commission, for example, who were there to investigate and find out the truth of what went on and, and learn the lessons. And I know it came at great cost for you to have to say, actually, the report's not good enough and it's inaccurate and the scope is And it too took narrow. seven years to get the report. You know, they're looking for the truth further and further away from the actual incident and the police, independent police commission isn't really independent. Not yes. really. Police marking their own homework doesn't give you too much exactly. confidence, does it? That's <laughs> something I say a lot. What I will say is that the Independent Police Complaints Commission, after they agreed to do another report, said that they would have some experts on their panel. And I was one of the experts they called up. And I said that I would sit on their panel if, if they were absolutely committed to the truth and finding out what went on. 
Now, we know that with Maria's case, actually, you had to keep pushing. It wasn't just one challenge to the Police Complaints Commission. You had to keep pushing. And I think, again, your bravery and your courage is just incredible. You all show such humility. And there was a coroner's inquest. And perhaps we can talk a little bit about that because, Manuel, on behalf of the family, you really had to, I call it, hold people's feet to the fire by ensuring that there was a proper challenge. And it was never about money for you. And I completely understand that. But perhaps for my listeners, you can explain just a little bit about that process. Because I've only recently seen the report, literally days ago. And I was astounded, actually, by how clear the findings were about what went on. But those findings never really made their way out into the public domain. Um, and I think they're still very relevant for us to talk about. So perhaps if you can just explain a little bit about that challenge and why it was important to you and, and the inquest report itself. Well, I think it was glaringly obvious to anybody with half a brain that there were a catalogue of fatal errors and, and errors as, as being kind, really. And I think the only way that we could achieve any form of help for anybody else that's still living so that these, you know, this situation doesn't repeat itself for any other family or victim was to push for an inquest. And it's interesting that on the very first question of an inquest, we were pretty much shoved down and told that it was very unlikely that that would happen. And, you know, there was brick walls appearing which we just kicked down as if they were polystyrene because we were determined. I mean, I can't underestimate you have to have such determination because the system defends itself by putting more and more red tape in front of you. And even your mm -hmm. advocates that are working with you constantly say to you, well, don't expect anything. Um, yeah. I think Celia remembers the time when we said the only thing we expect is already done you know, we will have an inquest and we will not let this go. So you have to become almost like a bug and to not drop anything. Obviously, I don't wouldn't encourage people to push for an inquest if there's no grounds for an inquest. But if there are, then you should never give up. And as how hard as that is and was, I think determination is probably the underlying factor. The second mm -hmm. factor is highlighting a lot of the elements that make up the justification for having an inquest in the first place. So you almost have to become your own barrister. You have to be as sharp and as determined as the people that you think you're fighting with because the mm -hmm. system itself is just not friendly towards that kind of outcome. We persevered and I think there it's was... It's designed to make people give up. I think it is, yeah. And I think there was a massive reluctance. I think... I was very happy with the lawyers that we had. I think they were great, but I think we spurred each other on because they know the legal parameters of, and, and they also have precedent. They know what's been occurred before. And that can almost create a barrier because they kind of don't want you to be upset because you don't achieve something. But at the same time, that can be a limiting belief. And I think we had nothing mm -hmm. to lose and we were just fiercely determined and not for victory or purely because if we're going to lose someone so special in the way that we did, then in her name, we have to try and get something back. And that was what really spearheaded that whole inquest. But the inquest itself was 
after we achieved it and was in that process, it was kind of brutal. And to listen to officers that were directly responsible or not, as the case may be, for elements of what led up to eventual death, listen to them take the stand with an attitude that was ambivalent, laissez-faire, and embarrassing. Apathetic. Yeah. And deceitful. Embarrassing. And, and our barrister on many occasions put a leading question in. I think one of the questions I heard him repeat to all of the people who took the stand that represented the police that day or those throughout the, the inquest was, now that you know that you didn't follow your own procedures and as a result of that someone died, would you change anything if you could? And every one of them answered no. If you were to look at a barometer of response of the jury, I think the jury were borderline like feeling sick. They they looked mm-hmm, fatigued mm-hmm. with what they heard. They looked disgusted. I could see it on their faces. But I felt that our family was in the middle of a movie that was some sort of horror movie joke that we were in and we had a starring role because it was surreal to hear that. It made her life seem less important than a fly. It was just incredible. Well, I actually want to take this moment to apologise to you for that. And although it wasn't of my doing, I think it's important as former law enforcement that that should never have happened. And I'm truly sorry that you not only had to endure hearing about what happened to Maria, but then to have to listen to people take no responsibility. That is not acceptable. And I really just want to say I'm I'm sorry. No, thank you. Um, I mean, look, the hardest thing to do, I think Celia's done a better job than me and Bengi. I can tell you that an ambulance siren or a police car siren used to send me into a, a rage. You know, I could be in a meeting talking to someone and I'd hear a, a police car or an ambulance. It didn't matter to me that whole, and, and what I would, my body temperature would change because I was filled with anger. And I would think, where are they going? Starbucks? And, and, and that's a terrible thing to say because now I, I, but I had to retrain myself not to have that trigger because I, I couldn't believe it. You know, after hearing people saying, I don't care, more or less, which is what we had to endure and listen to, that trauma goes with you. It's like you carry it. It's like, how am I supposed to respect someone in a uniform when that's how they behave to my face? It's not, it wasn't hearsay. I heard them say it live to my face, to our face. It's unacceptable. Passion is something they should learn, I think, as well. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. 
your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, compassion and empathy. And as I appeal to officers, I talk about humanity, the essence of us being human beings, not human doings. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. We are all human beings. It doesn't matter if we wear a uniform. The human being part has to come first. And I think that. But how many people understand that? How well, I think they really do when, understand what that means. When you explain it, and bearing in mind, I've trained thousands of law enforcement all across the world. When we go back in terms of culture, and I, I spent a lot of time in Essex Police, firstly talking to the leaders after Maria died and after numerous other murders happened, and I talked to the leaders, and I, I have to say, I felt malaise and apathy, defensiveness, resistance. And I was very concerned about the attitude. And I actually wrote numerous times to their chief just before he resigned about what was going on in the culture. And I locked horns with them on it. The chief resigned and a number of other senior officers moved on. But what was important, why I want to flag that, is because you're exactly right in identifying cultural problems. This wasn't just about one or two officers. This is about the whole culture and leadership. And that's what I was bumping up against. It is also about gender bias and sexism and misogyny. And I felt that Mm -hmm. as a woman trying to create change. So I don't know if that helps in any way to validate it's a far bigger problem. And, And given Sarah Everard and many other cases that are happening right now, there is a huge problem with culture in policing. And one of the things that was interesting for me with the coroner's inquest report, and I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't read the report before, but there were two findings around senior leaders in particular. And I hadn't seen that, but it was everything that I felt. And obviously everything about culture comes from the top, the top down and the bottom up. So it's interesting that the, the jury found failure around those leaders And it wasn't just about training, it's actually about the message and it's about the lack of understanding of domestic abuse, which is what I bumped up against, and the the lack of interest to create change. Mm -hmm. Now, that lack of interest, you know, there's one thing about failure, but there's another thing about, okay, we got it wrong, we might not say that publicly, but shit, we need to do something here. Yeah, I think something else plays out here. You know, if you're a detective of any sort, or just even curious, and even if you've got a quarter of a brain left in your head and you're just a bit curious, Maria's case for me was probably the best example of Professor Plum in the library with baseball bat. Because we're not talking about somebody that just suddenly attacked somebody, had a bad day at work, came home and beat up his girlfriend or wife. We're talking about a known killer a murderer mm-hmm. who had murdered a former girlfriend and had served time for it. So it's even worse because 
you have that as a precursor to any action or knowledge. You know that what you're dealing with is someone that has the capability to murder because they already have. You then get clue number two, which is he assaults her. They don't really properly investigate the sexual assault because for whatever reason, that seems odd. So now you've got a convicted murderer that served time, released, attacking a vulnerable woman and potentially sexually assaulting her, getting custodial sentence. They gave her an alarm to protect her. What from? And why turn it off? I mean, honestly, you couldn't have that many more clues. If it was a maze, it would be a maze with one corridor. So who turned it off? What was the underlying decision of why that would be an effective but, but point, <laughs> mode of operando on his release from prison? I mean, who who did that? What were they thinking? Where were they held responsible? No one. Point, it's the invisible man did it. The point is, though, if you think about it, in a lot of domestic violence cases, there aren't always glaringly obvious markers, right? So you, we have to be fair. We have to say sometimes there may be situations where the police don't get a clear indication of present danger or, or something like that. We have to be balanced with that. But in Maria's case, that's impossible. You can't even give them that. You can't even afford them no. that possibility. You are talking about someone that was a known murderer to the police. They knew. And then he attacked. And he'd been and in custody days or weeks before. So if they can get that wrong, Laura, where unfortunately, like I sarcastically said, it was Professor Plum in the library with the club or whatever it was, it is absolutely embarrassing to think a police force of any kind, even if it had amoebas working for them in uniforms, could make that failing. Because there is no excuse. There is no, oh, we didn't know, or we thought he was a nice guy. What can you possibly say? If it were me, I and I was in wearing a uniform, and I have worn a uniform, a British Army uniform, and I know what it's like to put my life on the line to protect someone else. Not that I would ever want or advocate to kill anyone because it's not who I am. But I know the risk that I take. As I think you said, you know, I would be proud to actually try and protect someone. I don't know how I could put my head on a pillow at night knowing that someone's mother, someone's sister, someone's daughter is dead because they didn't do the most basic of human response. Mm -hmm. Forget mm -hmm. your obligation as an officer working for a company or whatever you're doing, I'm talking about basic human instinct was lacking. So I don't know whether Essex police hollow people out when they recruit them, but you're right. Culturally, that is, that's a pandemic, bigger than the pandemic we're in. The most basic failures. And I, I think that's a very important point to underline. We're not talking about very sophisticated things. And Celia has been a key part of the campaign uh, using your mother's case, Celia and, and Bengi and your sister, um, and while talking about where failure points happen. And if you don't join someone's history up, i.e. what they've done in the past, and this was someone, as we know, who'd killed his former girlfriend, therefore it should instantly be a red flag. But that history wasn't joined up, and what's more, there was no real investigation. And of course, the police are there to investigate. And I think that's what the, for me highlighting 29 failure points, the fact that he didn't go to a multi-agency public protection arrangement meeting, well, actually he did, but the DCI decided 
for whatever reason, because I can't tell you what was in their head, the case didn't meet their criteria. And my question back was, if this case didn't meet the criteria, what kind of case would? Exactly. This is a very dangerous moment. And that's my point. My point is, wow, you could be so forgiving. I think I've said this many times. I would forgive the police if they got a flat tire on the way trying to save her. You know, or there was some degree of courage, but they turned up a minute too late when they connected the dots. I think what, although I am directly related and one would think that I have a vested interest in venting, I don't. I'm not going to gain anything apart from wind myself up. But when I actually, you know, look at this abstractly, take myself outside and analytically look at this as an average intelligent person, I would say to myself, wow, it's impossible. You couldn't, you couldn't script this if you were a movie director. It's not possible that all of these things could add up, even to a point that even if the data wasn't connected up and they didn't, A didn't know what B was doing and C didn't know what planet it was on, how on earth, when you actually did get to the point of present danger, do you have a situation where a police officer is told to go to the property but doesn't bother? I was scared. Get someone else to go with you then. You know, I mean, I was scared, so I didn't do it. Imagine if I said I didn't want to go to work today because I thought there was a ferry on on the track and, you know, I'd be fired. How is that possible? So I think this case for me, and I've looked at a lot of cases because I, like Celia and like Bengi, don't want to use this as a forum to vent. I want to use it as a forum so that no one else... has to suffer this. Because <clears throat> it's life-changing. It's not just it's life-changing for people on such a broad scale. And here's the danger. Here's the bigger danger. If people were to watch this case and know about this case, as they did, it had a lot of publicity, and we made sure we did that. And it wasn't nice to do that. It's horrible. You are you know, airing your soul in front of strangers. But you do it because you hope that something might rattle the cage, something might change. But the bit that worries me more than anything else is if we even say that it was a terrible disaster and everybody responsible in that disaster really should be unforgiven because if they just didn't care, then at the very least, let's look at tomorrow. Will the people responsible for what happened change something so that tomorrow becomes different and the biggest problem i have is i don't see that change and the next biggest Mm -hmm. problem is how many silent victims are out there suffering worrying about picking up the phone when they've been shot 55 times in the chest but that might not be good enough reason for the police to come and if they don't come they might get the 56 shot in the chest and die you know how many people are scared of calling the police because they're ineffectual that's a big problem. And I said that, you know, mm-hmm. I personally wouldn't phone them if I had 33 people trying to break into my house because they'd turn up late and they'd probably go to Starbucks on the way. I, that's how I feel. And I feel bad to say that because I know there are a lot of good police people out there. There really are. And I feel sorry for them because a police force like Essex, you know, in such a big, it's a city, not even a village. They need to grow up and take responsibility and understand that human rights are rights and they need to be upheld and actually they'll Mm -hmm. have a lot more respect 
from the public if they did do something. There's always going to be some people in the public that are always going to badmouth them. But I would love to sort of say this police officer did something that was incredible and he put his life on the line or he's a hero because he, he stopped this happening or that happening. I want to say that. I don't want to say what I feel. Yeah. One of them who failed miserably, Tracy Scorer, she got a promotion and ended up giving the training. <laughs> I have seen that before, unfortunately. I didn't know that in, in this case, but it doesn't surprise me, Bengi. And it's something that, you know, I always say to police, there has to be responsibility and accountability. There has to be from the top down to the bottom. And it's the same with perpetrators. If we don't hold them to account, what's the message? Right. Yeah. The message is you carry on and to the victim, the message is we don't care. So at every stage there has to be accountability and responsibility taking and, and Essex, I didn't see that. So that doesn't surprise me, Bengi, and it's something that I talked with many leaders about. When the, when the new chief constable came in, Steve Kavanagh, I will tell you that he did ensure that there was change and at great cost. And I, that's when I spent a lot of time training frontline officers and I felt the attitude full on. And again, it took Steve Kavanagh and a new team, a new leadership team to create change. Now, that's not saying that everything's perfect there because it's not. And there's still big problems, as always, in terms of accountability with perpetrators. But perhaps just returning to the leadership point, because Essex, and I'm not sure how much you both know, but actually there were nine murders all in a row after Maria's. And so for me, it was looking at all of those cases together, not just one. And I kept seeing the same patterns repeat, which is why I was so outspoken about it. Um, Maria's was really the, the first in that number of cases that showed systemic failure, spectacular systemic failure, as well as individual officer failure. You know, my concern is always you can bring someone in, let's say for me, for example, sometimes they would bring me in to tick the box. We've done some training. My question now is what changes afterwards? You know, and if you do one training day, that's not going to change things because it's the attitude and the aptitude and it's the people that you can be the best trainer, and I am one of the good trainers. I get very good feedback, but I'm not a miracle worker. You have to hold people to account. It's the attitudes and aptitude after the training, and it's looking to see that X took another call or X attended another call out, and did their attitude, did their behavior change? Was the case investigated properly? Was the intelligence joined up? Was all the things that should have happened, did they actually happen? And what we were seeing in Essex for a long period of time was that wasn't happening. There were still women being, women in particular, being let down. And those 29 failures that I identified in Maria's case, everything from not doing a basic risk assessment when she was calling, that's the first point. And when you risk assess, you then have to safety plan. And at no point was there a thorough safety plan. So the, the basic things with the investigation and checking intelligence they're the four pinnacles, really. You have to take a case and then work with somebody. Let's say Maria didn't want to continue talking with the police. Well, we have great advocates now. So, Manuel, I take your point. You know, police failure means a lack of trust and confidence. But what I will say, there are fantastic advocates, people like me, who can challenge the police. 
So for anyone who's listening, if you are experiencing abuse, yes, you can call the police. And I always recommend that happens. But there are also fantastic advocates from refuge, women's aid and local support services who Mm -hmm. can Mm -hmm. be the stone in the police's shoe. You know, I've been called a dog before, a dog, like I'm like a dog with a bone. And, and note the analogy. It's a very negative one to be seen as a dog. But if you say you're a stone in the shoe, as in you don't give up, and that's what I see you all having been, and quite rightly so, you at times, and for me with Essex, I was the stone in the shoe that didn't give up. But the lessons must be learned. It's not just tick the box, we've done some training. It's what happens thereafter. How do you measure that learning? Well, How do you change an organisation? And they're bigger questions because it's micro and macro, isn't it? And I think, Manuel, you talked a little bit about that when we spoke before, that it's the individual officer, but it's it's the macro stuff. It's the big picture of what changes too. Celia, you wanted to come in. Yeah, uh, just what's coming up for me is like the paradox of how someone was even allowed out of uh, prison with, you know, no psychological assessment, such as uh, the man who doesn't deserve to have his name mentioned. Then, you know, the police, their assessment, how have they psychologically and emotionally shifted since something has happened or since they've had the training? How have they personalized that training and related it to if it had happened to their sister or their mother or their auntie or their nephew? Is there any emotional content in this training? Because I I don't understand how someone can't be moved by human life and loss and you know, all of these things that have such a knock-on effect of devastation and you see people crying and having panic attacks, let's really lift the lid on it. And, you know, wanting to hurt other people and that rage and that pain that just amplifies out into the world. Like, how do you not feel shifted after that? And why is someone allowed out of prison that is numb to human, like how to, to human emotion? Like, how is that even possible? Like, I don't, I don't get it. Well, there's two things there, and they're very perceptive points that you make. One is, who is the trainer? Because it can just be very didactic. You know, someone comes in, puts a load of stats of what domestic violence call-outs look like, but no heart, no humanity, no, here's a picture of Maria. This is who she was. This is what happened. And making it very personal and making it very clear, this is someone's life. It's not a statistic. Now, going back in time... And she means means something to people. She means something to my brother. She signifies something. I have a a moment where I I saw someone get knocked over in uh, Morocco and I went numb, okay? I, I did. I went numb. I saw someone bleeding on the floor and I didn't know what to do. And it was when I saw another family member, someone run over to them and the pain when they saw that someone they loved had been hurt. And it, then as soon as I heard them scream, I, I completely, I was like, oh my God, this is someone's life and they mean something to someone else. And this is, this is terrible. This is going to destroy their family. This is going to, you know, and I, and I really, that, you know, that activated me. And I just don't get it. Like, how can you not be activated by this? Where are you? Well, I do think quite a lot of it comes down to who delivers that training and how it is communicated. So we go back to communication, don't we? Celia and I have had lots of conversations Mm -hmm. about communication. But I think once you start to humanise, for example, in my training, it's difficult for officers to leave the room, even when we do it virtually, because I bring them into themselves and we talk about their childhoods and things that happened to them. And it becomes much more about the micro and macro of how we are 
what we learn as children about girls and boys and relationships and a healthy relationship versus an unhealthy. And whenever I talk about murders, I always talk about the humanity part, put the picture up, talk about their life story as much as I know. Normally for me, it's with the family's permission. You talk about them as a human being. Now, once you get the hearts and minds changed, the difference is when they go out on the street, then they start to do the job differently. But of course, they still need to be able to join up the intelligence and the information and the history. And we've had a culture of not being proactive about perpetrators, which is crazy when you think mm-hmm. about it in the police. You would expect when they go after organised criminals, of course they're perpetrator-focused, but this weird thing happens with domestic abusers and stalkers because they are, on the whole, very good talkers. They can be psychopaths. And when you're a psychopath, you can be charming and yeah. you can say things that police want to hear. You use power and control tactics. So a lot of what I do to train people is wake them up to the power and control dynamics a perpetrator uses and that they have to be on their game of understanding this is a, this potentially could be a very dangerous person. And that, Celia, is where you've been part of the serial perpetrator campaign. Many yes. of the cases I've worked, these men, dangerous, violent men, have murdered two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight women, and the police have done nothing. If that was a serial killer outside the home, everyone pays attention to those cases, but somehow having a relationship with someone seems to change something in terms of their understanding of risk and danger. And that's what I've spent a lot of time tapping into. How is it that you know someone's name and you know they've had a relationship that somehow in your mind you think they're less dangerous and you do very little? The prison officer, the probation officer, all these people interacting with them, not properly joining up their history. And that's the cultural shift I've been trying to change as well. Not just the attitude of people, but also their understanding of what dangerousness looks like you know, of a perpetrator. They Mm. might be a good-looking guy. They might be very charming. They might be charismatic. They might say all the right things. But that could mean they're even more dangerous, not that they're less dangerous. So again, a lot of what I do is undressing the things that people have learned in their heads Mm. about what they think risk and dangerousness looks like and ensuring that they do check information databases, that they do join things up. Laura, you you bring some really good points up. You know, when you look at intelligence, you've got various aspects of intelligence, you know, including emotional intelligence. I I just wonder what sort of vetting or profiling do the police do when they recruit people? Because, you know, there's an old adage, trust your gut, and a lot of detectives do that and they follow their nose and they're smart because they trust their gut. You know, is there any encouragement and is there any performance and rewarding of good behavior you've got to look at it multifaceted and you know look at the whole thing firstly from the very beginning when you recruit people what are you recruiting and for what purpose and yes is is a broad spectrum of what they have to do but statistically we know what aspects of policing take up what amount of time you know we've got numbers so surely we should attribute certain attributes into the recruitment process of what we would want mm-hmm. someone to have, i.e. maybe an emotional intelligence. Would we want to recruit someone that's a drone, that's a bigot, for example, you know, hates women? I don't think that would be a great idea. I'm not saying that 
do we do any intelligent filtering of who are we going to put in this role? The next thing I would say is what kind of measurement is, is there? Not just statistics, measurement and reward. If you're not measured, um, managing people is a very interesting thing. If, if you don't actually have a measurement stick for them and they're not accountable for the results, then typically what you are going to find over time is a laissez-faire attitude. I've just done enough. I've just ticked the box. And that's terrible because in policing, it isn't a McDonald's drive through It is something where people's lives can be at risk, whether it's domestic violence or something else. You need that degree of perseverance and measurement. And I don't know whether or not there are instruments within the police forces that do a good enough job. I don't think statistics Obviously not. are the answer on of their own. I think what they do is they shine a light on areas where we need to focus. But then once mm-hmm. we know where those areas are to focus, surely if you had 20% of your cases in your jurisdiction was domestic violence, wouldn't you attribute a team with the emotional intelligence and the you know, intelligence and the training and the capability to kind of... And the professional curiosity. ...aspect. And so I think it's multidimensional. I think it starts from the beginning, it starts from the top, and it filters all the way down. But if you recruit someone to do a menial task and treat them badly as well, that also... Mm -hmm. So the whole, whole system, and I agree with you, I think it comes from the top down. What has happened to pride? What has happened to... I'm the chief constable of this and I'm going to eradicate this problem. I get there are pressures and someone might not like that you're getting rid of crime and that's tough. Well, then don't wear the uniform. Like when I joined the army, I didn't say, oh, I won't get shot, will I? Of course I'm going to get shot. I put the uniform on. I don't want to be shot. I'll do my best to avoid it. But I'm there to do that job and I did it. Why can't they do that same attitude? You're wearing a uniform, you're walking around acting tough, but you're not doing anything that looks tough. So... Be accountable and have some pride. Don't just play with numbers. Numbers, you, you play with numbers and you can filter them any way you want. You can massage them to appear to be doing something. But also, is there a sense of pride? Is there a sense of accountability? Yeah. Is there a measurement? And do we even care? Because it doesn't feel like it. And with the exception of you and people like yeah. you holding them to account, it is a very, very thin line between anything being successful or everything being a disaster. And Mm -hmm. I want to correct one thing that I said earlier. My fear was that people wouldn't call the police because they didn't feel they would get enough support. I know firsthand that there have been many cases where people have said that's why they haven't called the police. I agree with you. I would encourage everyone to call the police if they've got a problem because we don't want to expect failure. We need to be driving performance and So I just wanted to clarify that one point as well. But I do think from the top down and the bottom up, it's got to be tackled. Absolutely. You said so many important things all in in that dialogue just then. Three of the things I always talk about in Crime Analyst is being curious, asking questions, and always trust your instinct. They're three things I've always said to police officers. There are three things I've said consistently across my career, and Celia knows how important professional curiosity, we've talked about that a lot. Yes. You know, they're the three things I always want people, doesn't matter who you are, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, police officers, judges, magistrates, social workers, health workers, being curious. 
that is so important to ask questions. The emotional empathy that you talked about, emotional and intelligence, so important that someone might say something, but we're seeing acting in a way that doesn't fit with what they're saying. Ask questions about it. Trust what your gut's telling you about it. And I always talk about an analogy with dogs because I'm a big dog lover. We have more brain cells in our gut, in our stomach, than a dog has in its head. Not my dog. Not your dog. Your dog's your dog's smarter than Miss Beatrice, who's down by my feet at the moment oh, in the no. golden doodle. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so important, isn't it? That emotional intelligence and and empathy and curiosity. We're having this conversation in the wake of Sarah Everard. We're having this conversation after a police officer was convicted for kidnap, rape, and murder. And in the wake of that and the inquiry beginning the same day, it's released to the media that a police officer in the same unit as Wayne Cousins called David Carrick, he was charged with 29 offences, most of them rapes against women. They're in the same unit. Now, some might say, well, this is just a few bad apples. But I think what we're understanding is that it's not just about a few bad apples. It's actually about looking at the whole root of the tree. Who do you Mm -hmm. attract into policing? I've worked in it and I've left it three times for the same reasons. You know, who does the police service attract and why do we see women who are calling for help, who are terrified and being terrorised? Why are they met with apathy? Why is there a lack of urgency? Now, these words I'm choosing because that's what was found in the failures in Maria's case. Why wasn't there urgency when she clearly was articulating that there was a problem that was escalating? Okay, so I'm going to wrap this episode here. There's a lot to think about, isn't there? And so much to reflect on. So many thoughtful points. And there's much more to come in the final part of this interview. And please be reassured that Bengi is doing okay. I've spoken with him since and we've checked in. And we also recorded a special message for everyone. You'll hear that next time. So until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Adam Gross. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.